eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. We welcome you to a very special edition of Rico Bronia, the first ever killer's edition of Rico Bronia. Before we get started, before we introduce you to the killer that's joining us, there is some Met news we will discuss briefly, and that is the signing of Adam Adovino to a one-year contract. Before we get into that, I remind you, download, subscribe, rate Rico Bronia, whatever you do with podcasts. Do it for us. We appreciate it. So Adam Adovino re-signs with the Mets a one-year contract at about $4.5 million, and I think we forgot about him. <laughs> I think over the course of the last few months, when talking about this offseason, we sort of forgot about the existence of Adam Adovino, and it's sort of interesting when you think about his opt-out, why he opted out, him doing TV work over the last few months, and then subsequently staying with the New York Mets. When he opted out and said no thanks to about $6.5 million, his reasoning was, I'm unsure of the direction of the New York Mets. I'm unsure of what they're going to do this offseason. And we've seen what they've done this offseason. I think most of us would agree it's been, eh, you know, it's been underwhelming. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean it's awful, but they certainly haven't gone stargazing. So, Adam Adovino publicly says, I'm unsure about the future of the New York Mets. And then a few months later, resigns with the New York Mets after this underwhelming offseason and takes less money. So so you go back and ask yourself, okay, well, what changed for Adam Adovino? And there's a few things that jump out at me. Number one, the market. Uh, Adam Adovino is coming off a year last year in which I thought he had a very weird season in that. He clearly wasn't as good as he was in 2022. He wasn't terrible, but every metric went backwards. He struck out less guys. He walked more guys. He gave up more hits. His whip was up. His ERA was up. His FIP was up. He wasn't horrendous. I wouldn't define him as horrendous, but he wasn't nearly as good as he was in 2022. But the other thing that was really weird about Otto in 2023 is that he went from being a guy who you only would want to see face right-handed hitters. You wanted to find that right lane for him, as Aaron Boone used to say when he was a Yankee. And he backed that up in 2022. He was murder against right-handed hitters and lefties teed off on him. Last year was the exact opposite. 
Like, he was actually a little bit better against left-handed hitters than he was against right-handed hitters. He was, oddly enough, a guy you could have face both sides and pretty much performed at an equal level. So it was very, very strange. You could argue that was a good thing because he wasn't getting mashed by left-handed pitch and left-handed hitting every time he saw it, but he also wasn't nearly as dominant against right-handed hitting as he was a year ago. So it was a step back here for Adovino, but he wasn't terrible. And yet the market clearly didn't develop him for him because when you opt out and you could say all day, ah, it's unsure about the Mets, I'm unsure about them. I think he probably thought in this relieving market, I can do better than six and a half million dollars and he couldn't. And so not only does he not do better than the money he was going to make, even though he claims a bit of that would have been deferred, he then stays with the team. He had questions about their direction. And meanwhile, is there anything they did this offseason, if you're a veteran reliever, that would scream at you and say, oh, that's a good direction. I got to stay. Not really. So I think it comes down to the fact he misread the market and probably just wants to be here. You know, probably looks at New York and says, ah, I'm from here. I'd rather be here than take a one-year deal for a bit more money somewhere else. So overall, my reaction to the move is fine. That's my reaction. It's a fine move. I'm not against it. I'm not excited about it. I'm not going to paint it as the greatest move ever. I think that this move is kind of indicative of the offseason. It's a one-year deal, so can't scream and yell about a one-year deal. We have seen some real good out of Adam Adovino in these two years. We've seen some bad and mediocre. What are we going to get in year three of Otto? I don't know. <laughs> Who the hell knows? His career over the last five years has been so, and I guess this fits a lot of relievers, has been so up and down. But they're clearly going to rely on him. When we did our bullpen podcast a few weeks ago, you looked at the arms in this pen that you can fully rely on, and it's not much. It's Edwin Diaz. It's Brooks Raley. Adam Adovino probably fits that bill. I'd like to see them add one more reliever. I know he's a former Yankee, so we all laugh about that. But with Matt Moore out, Wandy Peralta does make a lot of sense. But I think the Adovino move is a fine move. They are better today than they were three days ago, sticking him in that bullpen. Because think about it. If Adam Adovino isn't on the roster, who is? And we went through those names from about two, three weeks ago on the Rico. And you see the drop-off. So it's a fine move. It's nothing to be really excited about. I still would like to see one more bullpen arm. And as I've said many times before, and we'll do another podcast on it coming up next week. They really need to add a legitimate designated hitter. So the Mets add Adam Adovino. Your thoughts on it? You can email us to RicoB at gmail.com. Now let's get to the main event. Pete and I talked about this. Do diehard Met fans on a Met-centric podcast want to hear from somebody we hate? And I'll tell you why I came to the conclusion, Yes. We pull no punches around here. There are going to be some Ricos in which we're giddy and we're excited and we're pumped up and you're going to listen and you're going to shut the podcast off at when it's over and say, I feel great. I'm happy. But then there's going to be a lot of Ricos where we're pissed, where we're angry, where we're depressed because we're calling it like it is. And you're going to shut that podcast off and you may feel sadder than you did before you put it on. We call it like it is. So following that kind of idea, we figured why not talk to some of the biggest villains in the history of this franchise, some of the biggest enemies in the history of this franchise, some of the biggest killers in the history of this franchise. 
So we present to you the killer series. And considering our big rewatch for this offseason is game seven of the 2006 NLCS, we figured there was only one place to start. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Rico Brony. It's the beginning of a brand new series, the Killer Series, where we talk to people throughout Met history that killed us, that gave us great suffering. And I think this is the right guy to open this series up with. A man who with one pitch, and it was really more than one pitch, caused us great pain and anguish and has really sent us as Met fans into a long period of despair. So before we get started, I just want to say on behalf of every single Met fan out there, on behalf of all of the people that were at Chase Stadium on that October night, on behalf of every Met fan that's watched this man pitch, let me just tell Adam Wainwright, can you go fuck yourself? <laughs> wow. Well, you weren't kidding. You were you came in hot. Um, well, you know, out of respect for you and your podcast and what a great job y'all do. Uh, or what I thought you did. Um, <laughs> I thought you were gonna, uh, you know, be gentle. So I, I didn't. I didn't face the camera towards that. Oh, you son! Like, I see what you're doing. I see what you're showing. Yeah, I see all yeah, that. See that? That's the 06 World Series championship celebration. So I just didn't know if you could see it. Can yeah. you see it? Oh no, I see it. Yeah, I see it. It's right there. It's it's very pretty. It's very very nice. Yeah, that's me right there. I'm celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see it. All right. Let me ask you this, because I think to to me, to many Met fans, like whenever we talk about worst moments as fans, that's a game that comes up. That's a moment that comes up. Yeah. And I'm just curious for you, because with all due respect, you've had a hell of a career and you accomplished a lot. This was early in your career. This was you as a young pitcher closing because of an injury. Is this like a very special moment to you? Is it almost equal in love <laughs> to the pain we suffer from it, striking out Beltran the way you did? Let, let me tell you this. Um, the best chirp and biggest compliment at the same time I ever received from a fan from the stands was at City Field last year. And it was one of those movie-type moments where, you know, everyone's chirping and hollering and whatever. But then it just kind of like went silent all of a sudden. And there was this one particular guy, and I hope he's listening to this so he feels special too. <laughs> he goes, Wainwright, you ruined my life in the sixth grade. <laughs> I was like, yes. 
I love that. I love that I ruined his life in the sixth grade. I, I, uh, you know, I, and I loved hearing the booze coming back. But you know, as you know, what was great about uh, the Mets fans. They were all like, "Wainwright, we freaking hate your guts," but you, you know, respect. You did pretty good. You did good. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, so. you did all right. You know, it's funny. I want to go back to the very beginning because. You're drafted by the Atlanta Braves, and you're a kid from Georgia. And one thing we hate more than even maybe you and the St. Louis Cardinals is the Atlanta Braves. Like, the Atlanta Braves are <laughs> our arch nemesis. And I remember seeing that trade go down, and I was surprised. Like, freaking Braves traded a Georgia kid for freaking J.D. Drew? How did you take that as a Georgia kid, as a prospect, when you're traded by the Atlanta Braves to the St. Louis Cardinals? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I... I um, grew up uh, the biggest Braves fan in the history of the world. Ugh, another reason I hate you. Um, I mean, just like it couldn't be bigger. Mm. You know, I I probably would have named my kid Shay if Chipper hadn't done it. You know, before I was drafted. Um, Very good. But uh, just like we patterned our days around those games. You know, like I know a lot of Mets fans do. But you know, those '90s years with the Braves. You know, when I was really kind of growing up, um, born in the '80s. You know, we 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 suffered through the the really hard times as Atlanta Braves fans, but I never took my Dale Murphy jer- jersey off. Um, and then, but then you know, the '90s were like this great reward when they traded for Smoltz and they had Glavin and Maddox in there and Maddox from the Cubs. And then you know, they signed all these really cool veteran players. And I still remember this is why I really love meeting fans out in the public. I remember meeting Lonnie Smith in the Atlanta Mall when I was six years old. Mm. You know, and he was. And he was just so cool to me. He was great to me. And I'll just never forget that. I remember, I still, I'm 42 years old. Right. You know, I remember that now. And so I feel like those are special moments that you shouldn't botch. But, you know, up there, I don't know if y'all can scroll up enough, but at the top left there, uh, Brian Snickers' bobblehead is up there. He was my double <laughs> A manager wow. with the Atlanta Braves wow. um, farm system. So, but you know what? When I got traded away from the Braves, it was a good time for me to have a fresh start. I needed to kind of reset. I got sort of passed up by a few other prospects in the system. And, and uh, I kind of had a bad reputation for, you know, maybe being lazy or being late. And so I, I wanted to reset that. And and, uh, and that was an, a well-earned reputation, by the really? way. Um, and so uh, I needed to reset and trade, get a trade to the Cardinals. By the way, when I found out I was getting traded, I was uh, asking my future father-in-law for his permission to marry his daughter. Oh and, you know, when you're when you're having that conversation and you're like, all right, sir, I'm, you know, I really want to settle down. And, you know, you know, everything's kind of on a path to, oh, it just got changed 180. So now we're going to St. Louis <laughs> potentially. So uh, that was in the middle of that conversation when I found out I was traded. I was very grateful uh, that I got traded to a great organization, you know, the winning franchise and looking at it now is the greatest thing that ever happened in my baseball career. No question about it. Now, do you remember your major league debut? I assume you do. Like I do a radio show with an athlete, Tiki Barber. You may have heard of him. Oh yeah. Good, decent football player. And it's funny what he remembers and what he doesn't remember. Like there are certain things about his career. He remembers specifically. So it's always fascinating to hear that, but your MLB debut, do you remember specifically kind of everything about it? Cause as you probably yeah. recall, it was against the New York Mets. It was. And um, and I remember there's several things I remember about it specifically, but um, I 
two outs. I gave up a leadoff hit to a little Japanese second baseman guy. I can't remember his name. I'll help you um, out. Kaz Matsui. Yeah, Kaz Matsui. I gave up a leadoff hit there and then ended up working my way around. I had two guys on. I had two guys out. Um, and I had a one-two count. Maybe a 2-2 count, but I think 1-2 count on Victor Diaz. That's right. And uh, Victor was a guy I faced in the minor leagues, you know, 65 times. Uh, We came up together against each other. I think maybe even drafted the same year. Maybe coming out of – I think he came out of the Dominican. He might have been drafted a year or two before me. But we met up in the same, you know, rookie ball, A ball, you know, double A. We we faced each other that first day in the – but the the thing about what I remember most about that was Victor never hit a home run off me, by the way. Never, not ever. You can ask him. The minor leagues never hit a home run off me. Um, had great success off Victor. He was the Mets' top prospect, and I was one of the Braves' top prospects. But I went four seams at the top, curveball. Never had a hit on me. Now, I mean, not never. he had some hits. Never had a home run. And then in the when I got to the Cardinals, I developed a slider. Uh, the Braves would never let me throw a slider. And I had a good one. And so I started throwing it. And I get to this count with Victor, and I went, he doesn't even know I have this slider. This is going to be devastating to him. He has no chance to hit this pitch. And I threw it down and away just where I wanted to. And that son of a gun hit a 200-mile-an-hour line drive over the bullpen and left center for a three-run bomb. And the other thing I remember about that, the second thing I remember about that, I remember almost every pitch I've ever thrown, if you can tell. I mean, I can tell Um, right now. That's impressive, man. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I, I remember that we were down by a few runs in that game, maybe three or four runs, and we put up a crooked number to get back to, to only losing by one run going into that inning. And so, like, you know, Tony La Russa was that kind of guy where he would war- warm you up for, like, if you were, like, kind of the long guy or, like, the, you know, you pitched the kind of the, the not important innings. Um, he would warm you up to go in those innings. But if, but if you got back into the game, then he would put somebody else in. Well, and so that spot, I'm I'm there. I'm warming up, and and uh, we we go, you know, one down, and everybody's kind of looking over their shoulder, like, all right, who else is he going to get up? But he gave me a chance right there. He wanted to see what the young guy could do, and then I came in and quickly gave up a three-run bomb. So then I didn't pitch for almost a month again. Yeah, that by the way, that was a period of time where we all thought Victor Diaz was going to be a superstar. Like we were all convinced that guy's going to be the next great Mets star, and unfortunately, didn't exactly work out. Well, Victor was one of those guys that he had such a violent swing. Yeah. You know, it was like very much like Prince Fielder's swing from the right side. He would he would follow through and, and, and swing so hard that his bat hit the ground like with a thud, you know. But he had major pop, a lot of potential. I'm not sure why that didn't work out. He was a great player. Yeah, no, we were confused too. So in 06, you're in the bullpen as a seventh and eighth inning guy, right? And then Jason Isringhausen gets hurt, and that's when you become the closer. At that point, are you thinking – I'm just a reliever or were the Cardinals telling you, Hey, look, eventually you're going to be a starter, but for now, this is what we need you to do. Man. I spent five and a half years in the minor leagues, um, toiling my life away while watching all these guys in the big leagues. At that point in my career, what the only thing I was concerned with at all was being a big league baseball player, big league pitcher, never going back to the minor leagues. And so, um, luckily, I never did, you know, except for on rehab assignments. We were fortunate enough to stay up for a lot of years. But, um, you know, that was the main goal. I, I told I told Tony La Russa, I said, man, I'll I'll do whatever you need. I will I will fill up the Gatorade buckets, mm. whatever I need. But I, I got to go. You know, I got to go north. 
And so he made me earn it, but luckily we did. What, what were you? It was in that 06 year. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. The 06 was really my first full season. I don't know if you saw that year. I yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that year. Right, and you okay. know what? I'll tell you this. We beat you and beat Jason Isringhausen on a game-winning home run by Carlos Beltran. And as the series was starting against you bastards in 06, and I love Izzy. Izzy was a great Met, and he's a great pitcher. But because, as a fan, we had the memory of Beltran taking him deep, that memory was in my effing mind when you were closing out games, specifically in Game 7, because my thought was, I know Carlos can hit him. I'm not sure about you, because... You were freaking unknown. Like, you're this kid who became the closer the last week of the season, and you had a nasty curveball. That's all. I mean, I, as a baseball fan, that's all I knew about you, and that's dangerous. When you don't know much about a guy, you become dangerous. What were you thinking, by the way, as an, an a closer getting this job with, like, days to go in the season that year? Yeah, I mean, it really was days to go. I, I think what, what prepared me for that moment, I got to tell you a quick story, but um, – also, I got to brag on my my manager and pitching coach a little bit. Tony and Tony Larissa and Dave Duncan did such a great job of bringing me along uh, slowly at, a, at appropriate times, pitching me in bigger moments when I earned them and when I was ready for it, and brought me along to when I got to that spot. You know, I was ready for it. But also, uh, got to tell you this story. It takes five minutes. Um, hopefully, that's all right. It's a five minute exactly story. You can time it. Um, uh, so when I was in the minor leagues, I was I came up the Braves, then get traded to the Cardinals. But it didn't matter. Every minor league year, I had very high ups, very low downs, very inconsistent player, um, and just uh, frustrating to to live your life like that and to play like that. You know, I, I knew I had some potential, but it just wasn't I wasn't figuring out a way to to hone in on it and master it just yet. So uh, really superstitious man, like couldn't wear blue jeans, had to eat Papa John's pizza the night before I pitch. I love Papa John's pizza, but you know, if you have to do that the night before you pitch, then it, it's not a, it's not a strengthening tool. It's kind of a weakened tool because sometimes you go to these little minor league towns, you don't have Papa John's pizza. Right. And so then I go into my start and I'm going, well, you know, I didn't get to eat what I know I, I pitch well with, so you know, I'm probably screwed. You know, these kinds of things were going through my head, which is just ridiculous. And, um, and uh, I got, when I was uh, in double A with the Braves, I got um, a chance to go to play for the uh, 2003 Olympic qualifying team, Team USA. And, and uh, I get there, I'm supposed to be like the number two pitcher. Dave Stewart's my pitching coach. Frank Robinson's my manager. And he says, um, he sees my first bullpen session. Dave Stewart sees my first bullpen, and he goes, "Dude, that's man, you got some great stuff. This is gonna be cool. Yeah, you're pitching game two. We're going down here. We're gonna go to Panama. We're gonna qual qualify. Blah blah blah." I'm like, "Great, let's do this." So we're out in the fall, Arizona Fall League, getting ready for this thing, and I pitched a couple of times and just got my absolute lunch handed to me each time. You know, it was terrible. And uh, and Dave Stewart called me in to the office or to the hotel room one day with Frank Robinson, and he said, "Man." We cannot take you with us on quality. You're just not ready. Mm. You're just not ready. You, you, your mind is in a bad spot. And until you learn how to believe in yourself, you're not going to make it. Well, then I get traded. And I found out I got tra traded because there's like six or seven or eight guys in a room, all the big guys from the brass, from the Braves. Uh, and seven of the eight said, dude, get this guy out of here, man. Get him for J.D. Drew. Yeah, send him. 
this guy's never going to make it. This, the, between the right. ears is not there, man. You know, it's just not there. And so then uh, I go to the Cardinals, and that's that same year that we talked about uh, Victor hitting the home run off me. I'm the only one that got sent home from the playoff, uh, before the playoffs. All the other young guys, we only called up like three or four guys. They went on the trip. Mm. They went to experience it. They went to get their, you know, to, to experience the playoffs, see the crowds and feel the game and be there just in case, you know, just see somebody down there that can help. Not me. I got sent out and I went into the office and I didn't even know I was getting sent out. I wore a suit to the field and brought my bags ready to go. And uh, Jason Marquis pulled me aside and said, dude, I don't think you're going. I said, man, what? I got the stuff. Nobody told me. He said, go talk to Tony. I go talk to Tony. Tony says, dude, it ain't going to work. You know, you got to get home. Get You got to get a lot better. Can't use you. Okay, so that offseason, for my offseason, Cardinals are still playing. They're playing against the Astros. Uh, Pujols hits that, that dramatic yes. home run off Brad yeah. Lidge. Uh, and I'm watching it, and I should be excited, right? But I'm, I'm just kind of torn up about it so i i go outside i turn off the tv i go outside it's dark outside i get in this little john boat i have this little lake behind my house and little pond i just pedal out in there and i just start calling out i'm like god why am i going through all these struggles man why is it up and down and why is all these guys getting promotions and i'm getting sent out and i get traded because i'm not ready and like why is everybody wrong and like man why can't they see and like yeah, like Bobby Cox and these guys, they don't know what they're talking about. And Tony LaRusso doesn't know what he's talking about. And Dave Stewart doesn't know what he's talking about. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. That's a lot of really Hall of Fame caliber people right there to not know what they're talking about. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Maybe it, maybe it actually was my mm. fault. Maybe it was my problem and not their problem. Maybe it wasn't what they weren't seeing. Maybe it was what I wasn't doing. And so right there on the spot, I looked up to God and I committed to him right there on the spot. I said, Lord, from now on, I am going to throw every pitch like it's the last pitch of the World Series. Every single rep in the gym like it's the last pitch of the World Series. Every practice throw like it's the last pitch mm -hmm. of the World Series. I'm going to hit uh, this spot with such intent that it's the last pitch of the World Series. I'm going to make pitches like it's the last pitch of the World Series and everything's going to matter that much and I'm going to take this thing serious. I'm going to take my my craft serious finally. And so I went, I did that every day all offseason. All offseason long, I get, get into spring training and I see Dave Duncan. And Dave, before I even threw the first pitch, says, you look different. Mm. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, what's different? I said, just watch. So I throw my bullpen. Long story short, I pitched, I think I threw nine games that spring training. I struck out 14 guys, gave up two hits, made the team. Tony calls me in the office and says, how in the world did you do that? You were my last guy last year. We almost didn't invite you to big league camp. Like what, what was, I mean, what has happened? I said, I'll tell you after the season. He goes, keep that attitude. You're going north with us. I said, yes, sir. That season I started out as a long guy. I worked my way up pitching the sixth inning and I was pitching the seventh inning. And I was pitching the eighth inning. Izzy goes right. down. I get a big opportunity. I finally step into that role. They brought me along slow. I pitched the ninth inning like one time. Yeah. Only. One time right. only against the Brewers at the very last couple of days of the season. And I threw three warm up pitches to get ready for that because Braden Looper was warming up and they pulled him off and they got me ready. And uh, gave me the first save up, my first real save up that season. 
But then I closed out the NLDS and LCS in the World Series. And Tony calls me back in the office afterwards. This is a really long story I'm condensing. He calls me back in the, the, the uh, office afterwards. And he says, all right, you told me you'd tell me. Now you got to tell me. How did that happen? And I said, Tony, you don't understand. And I told him the story. And I said, I closed out the World Series all offseason. I closed out the World Series all spring training long. I closed out the World Series all season long, 62 times. And then I did it five, seven more times or whatever it was in the postseason, mm -hmm. nine more times, whatever it was. So by the time I get to close out the World Series, I'd already closed it out 73 times or whatever it was. So it was an old right. hat. And the only thing he said was, he goes, I'll be damned. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, now all I got to decide is if you're a starting pitcher or a right. closing pitcher. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to pitch the first nine or the ninth, nothing in between. And he said, that's fair. And then I started. Everything. I got to tell you, it's a very inspirational story. Like I, I'm inspired. And then a part of me remembers that that story led to such pain for us as Met fans, but it shows how different things can be in such a short period of time. I mean, to your point, you're not even going to October in 05 and 06 you're closing out the divisional series against the Padres, obviously what you did to us, and then the World Series. Uh, it, it is incredible. Now, when you're the closer now and you beat the Padres the way you did, and now you're facing the Mets, we got this impression, basically because Braden Looper started singing it after you guys beat us, that you guys kind of mocked the Jose Reyes, Jose, Jose, Jose. You kind of thought it was dopey. Maybe <laughs> you thought he was dopey what's the deal that were you guys like, did you think that was pathetic? Did you think we were pathetic for singing it? Your thoughts? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't even remember doing that. Honestly, I, first of all, I love Jose. I think he's a, he had a great career and he was, he was always uh, very nice to me. I always felt like we had a great relationship from across the diamond. Um, but number seven was not an easy out, you know, and he he actually hit a really hard. Oh, ball I know, line drive off the bat. I couldn't believe drive. Jim Edmonds cruised over to it, made it look so easy. That that yeah, at bat in that yeah. inning, Wayno. Can I call you Wayno, or should I call you a different name? Should I call you a curse word? What do you want me to call you? Yeah, call Wayno. Wayno, dude. That ball off the bat, I thought because I'm sitting behind home plate, I thought that was going up the alley. You must have been scared shitless when he hit that ball. No, because if you watch before the pitch, I went out to Jimmy and I said, hey, move about five feet that yes. way. I'll just stay right there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jimmy was great at that kind of positioning, though. You know, there was uh, – if you made your pitch in a locations where you, you were trying to make him, he knew right where to be and he had incredible first steps. But uh, that was all positioning right there, man. That was – that was uh, and, and that was a good pitch, too. He just went down yeah. and got it and hit a hard ball. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that was a, a – uh, the precursor to that was I struck out Jose earlier in the series um, on a curveball in the dirt. And so, you know, when you get a guy swinging at your curveball in the dirt and then the next one you throw him is a little bit higher, that looks like it's down the middle. So even if it was a couple days away, the hitters remember that. Good well, hitters remember that. Kind of here's one thing that I don't think enough Met fans remember. And obviously, just by talking to you for a few minutes, I certainly know you're going to remember it. Game five, in a lot of ways, is the most painful game of this series for me because – the Mets gave Tom Glavin a lead. He gave up two runs immediately. You guys then scored a run, a run, a run. Before you know it, it's 4-2. And you got called in in the eighth inning with the Mets down by two, with guys on base, <coughs> and Jose Valentin was up. And you gave us a preview none of us knew was coming. 
because you struck him out on a curveball that I have to tell you, because I went back and watched this to remind myself, it was not a freaking strike. Like, you know that, right? It was off the plate. I mean, this is all, you know, we didn't have a box back then. (laughs) So it's still, was it a ball or a strike? Be honest. Your guy, your guy, Tommy Glavin, did he ever throw a pitch on, did he ever throw a strike on the plate in his entire life? No, he did not actually. You know, the guy's getting, he's a master at getting this far off the plate. I would have loved to have had that strike zone. So don't give me that. But uh, I'll I'll go back to a different at bat. I think one of the keys to the bat, uh, uh, key key at bats of the series was first and second, no outs in the bottom of the ninth. You had a pinch uh, hitter up that was going to bunt and you pulled him back and you brought in yes. Cliff Floyd. You brought in yes. Cliff Floyd and um, that was kind of your, your, your manager Randolph was going for right there. He, he thought there's got a young guy on the mound. He's, he's exposed. He's out there shaking his, you know, knees together, knocking his knees together and, and can't handle this moment. Cliff is about to hit a giant home run. And, uh, and, and, and watching that is a bat back actually. It gets me more nervous almost than the Beltran at bat because in the moment, I'm not nervous, not at all. I get nervous now watching it back, but I threw him like five straight heaters inside yep. over and over and over again, just challenging because, you know, you couldn't let Cliff get extended. If Cliff got extended, he was going to hit a ball 200 miles an hour. He had, he had that, he had those, like some of the hardest line drives I've ever seen hit. Yes. He hit him. And uh, just a, just a monster of a guy in the, in the batter's box. But, um, you know, after I had him set up so hard in, uh, there was no way he could think anything else was coming. He had to get ready for 94 on his hands over and over again. And he just missed the first one. He just missed it. If I don't get that in, if I don't get that in one more inch, he hits that 500 feet and then Randolph makes the greatest call ever. But, um, you know, then the the 2-2 curveball, there's just no way. He couldn't look for it. Okay, I'm so glad you brought this one up because this is one of those first second guesses in the history of the Mets. We get the first two guys on base, like you said. We're down by two after that Yachty home run, which is another moment. Yachty will be uh, another guy who joins me down the road on the killer series because that was a killer moment. But I remember sitting there thinking, I want a bunt. And the guy to bunt was Tom Glavin because he was the best bunter on the team. But how would you have reacted because it would have been so obvious if Tom Glavin is sent up as a pinch hitter to lay down a bunt. Like, we all know what's going on. Like, their other option was Anderson Hernandez, but Glavin was literally their best punter. So if yeah. Glavin comes up there with two on and nobody out, and you know he's bunting, like, I don't know. How would you have faced him? Let me tell you something. No one watched him lay down more bunts than I do. Right. than I did growing up. I mean, that guy was a master bunner. He was a very, very good bunner. All those Braves guys were great bunners. That was a big part of their deal. But he was great at it. I do think it would have been very hard to bunt some of my off-speed stuff in those days. But if anyone could have done it, it would have been him. I imagine we would have had some kind of wheel play right. on. And, um, so that, you know, thinking that Glavin's up there, you, you still take your chances, I think, even if he knows you're crashing, that he's not going to pull back and swing and hit a ground ball or line drive through a hole somewhere. Uh, he had great back control, but you still like your chances in that moment to put a wheel play on, I would think. But, hey, it didn't happen. You, you put in Cliff. You know, I, there's, you know, this is all uh, ifs and buts. And when he came up, my biggest fear was a double play because he couldn't move. Like, he had, I think it was knee issues at the time. So my fear was, boy, he hits the ball on the ground. It's a freaking double play. Innings over. 
either hit a home run or strike out. Because at least if you strike out, like the inning still sort of continues. What, yeah. what would you have wanted then? Like as you're on the mound, two run lead, two outs, or two on, nobody out. Would you have preferred the Mets send up an obvious punter or was it better to face a guy like Cliff Wood, who you know is just trying to go for the downs? No, I mean, I think it, you know, I don't know. In that moment, it, it didn't matter to me. I was just overly cocky. <laughs> uh, the first two guys reached, I'll tell you this, the first time I ever heard a thing from the crowd all year was those first two batters. And the whole crowd was going nuts. And your former Met hand, uh, Jason Isringhauser, Hausen, um, taught me a lesson earlier that year in spring training. He said, in the, in the biggest spots this year, you're going to get in some big spots. In the biggest spots, when the game feels like it's running away from you and it's speeding up and you got to slow it down, you need to step off the rubber. You can take a couple of deep breaths and you just need to reset. And if you do that, the game will slow down, trust me. And I did that in that moment. I remember that and I did it in that moment. And I told you, Every mother effer that I was hearing from the stands that was raining down on me, um, I didn't hear them anymore. It was like clearing the mechanism or whatever that uh, was in that movie. So um, that really got me through that moment. I don't think I would have cared who was coming up. Um, I, in my mind, from that second on, we were getting whoever it was out. You know, But I'd certainly think that in that spot, you know, especially with the swings he ended up taking, Cliff was probably the right call. Well, Cliff strikes out. Reyes hits that line drive we talked about earlier. You walked LaDuca. You weren't pitching around LaDuca, right? Like, you weren't cockily trying to go after Beltron, right? No, and you look at that pitch. If that's off the plate, it's like a half a centimeter close, off the yeah. plate. I mean, he could have very easily rung him there on a 3-2 pitch. It was a fastball sinker down the way. I thought I made a great pitch. And uh, if it's off the plate, it's – you know, I think that's one of those – if we had the, 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 the box now, that would have been like – Part of the ball right. was on the box, and the other, well, you know. If we had the box, you wouldn't box, have struck but, out Valentin in game five, if we're being fair. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, your box. My box is a little bigger <laughs> right. than your box. So, so is it the um, Tommy Glavin box? Because I will give you that. Glavin had a giant box, man. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the, here, here's where, here's where uh, some Mets fans don't know what happened. Um, when Beltran comes to the plate, we got bases loaded in. Yep. Two outs. And I'm doing this because you got to force out at any base, obviously. So it's the smart play statistically to Watt Valentin there, right? I'm just teasing. Um, so uh, Beltran comes up to bat. Yachty comes out to talk, talk to me. And this is why I hate the pitch clock in these big moments. Just right. in the big moments now. I, know, I understand, you know, regular season stuff, it's it's important and whatever. But I feel kind of like they. I wish they'd kind of get, get rid of it in, in some of the spots. I know you can't do that, but. Uh, this moment was so key for the whole series. You know, I wish you could call time or something three times a game and just have more extended time, something. But Yachty comes out to talk to me. And uh, he says, um, hey, what, what are you thinking here? I'm thinking sinker down and away. He's going to be aggressive. He's going to be swinging first pitch. So we got to make this pitch down and away. I said, great. He gets back behind home plate. And he looks up at Carlos. And then he looks out at me. And he goes, hey. Stay with me right here. We had a kind of a sign for that. And uh, I just had such incredible faith mm. in Yachty um, that whatever he was about to do would make sense. And I thought he was going to put curveball down, but he put changeup down. And in the moment, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. He'll never expect that. And I had enough moxie to throw it. 
Now when I watch back, I'm like, don't throw a change <laughs> up. If you, you know, this is your fourth best pitch. What are you doing? But uh, if you look at the pitch, it looks like a meatball right down the middle. But that changeup actually started at him and worked back to the middle of the plate. But it started at him and it was slower. So usually if it starts at you, you're going to have a hair trigger like, all right, I'm swinging. But it, when it was slower, you could see his eyes kind of light up. And he steps out and his eyes got really big. And I knew right there. I knew, mm. I knew Yachty. I knew Yachty outsmarted him right there. But his eyes got really big and he was like, what the heck was that? Because you know he was thinking, all right, this is going to be a fastball. This is going right. to be a curveball. He might throw a cutter slider thing in on my hands, but probably going to be hard or slow. And then I throw this change of the last thing he expected. That kind of, I really feel like that might have got him kind of out of whack. No, it bit. certainly worked. And obviously there's a curveball that lives in infamy when you were ahead 0-2. And you, you were confident. Like, you knew when you threw the 0-2 curveball, did you know, I'm going to fool him so badly, he's not even going to swing? Well, what we knew was, and Yachty, talked in, Yachty and I talked about it before the game, we've been watching his at-bats all series and, and all postseason, really. And, and Carlos was very aggressive early in the count. So, oh, 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 one, swinging all the time taking his rips and, and, and hitting pretty good. Right. Like I think he was coming into that series. He was hitting like 500 in the postseason, and almost that in his yeah, career. Great postseason. Postseason. I mean, the guy was, yeah. and he was a cardinal killer, you know, in the postseason leading yep. up to that moment. So, um, well, we've been watching him after those two pitches though. Very patient. O2 counts a lot. We had him O2 a lot, but then it would be one, two, 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 three, two, every time. And then somebody'd throw something up there and he'd hook it in the corner, run to second, and or hit a home run or whatever it was. So I look at Yachty and I said, Man, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Here, if we get this guy O2, what are you thinking? I said, I am thinking he's gonna take this pitch if we throw mm. it O2. And he says, I I think he will too. And so I said, Man, I O2, I'm gonna throw the best strike that I can possibly throw, located, but strike, and we're gonna take our chances. And I mean, you know, that's that's part of the reason it worked is that I had hundred percent belief in it, but it's kind of cra crazy mindset. Now, you know, my pitching coach this last year, Dusty Blake would have punched me in the head if I had that kind of right. comment before the game. But, but you know, that's, there's a key. This is when I tell young pitchers about watching film and, and really learning the hitters and preparing, this is one of the stories I tell because, you know, without watching and paying attention, we don't right. know that, you know, we don't make that pitch. I probably bounced one there. He doesn't right. swing. Now we got one, two. Then we go, all right, do we go back to curveball or do we go fastball, which is what he wants. Great fastball hitter. So I'm thinking, well, shoot, you know, because uh, we didn't get there because we paid attention. We prepared and luckily I executed a pitch. Sure did. Now we didn't see you for a while after that because you just never faced you, like for whatever reason. A few years later, yeah. Beltron gets traded by us to the Giants, then as a free agent signs with the Cardinals. And I know that was the year you had the Tommy John, but you were there. I mean, you were around. Did you ever talk trash to Carlos? Did you ever say, hey, what's up, Carlos? How's so Carlos, that Carlos, was, Carlos came to us in 2012. That was after us. So I was back pitching. Um, so Carlos was with us 2012 and 2013. Gotcha, gotcha. And, uh, yeah, so that when, I, when I found out we had signed Carlos, first of all, super excited, great player, great playoff player, uh, winning player, smart player. 
great teammate. Everything that we'd always heard was actually true. This guy's an amazing person, by the way. Amazing person, uh, amazing wife, amazing family. Like when you watch Carlos and you watch his wife, you feel like they're the president and, the, and like right. the first lady. They're so professional. Like she's always dressed to the nine and he's always dressed to the nines. Like they, they're always the best looking people in the room and they're the most like smooth person in the room. Like the way he walks and the way he dances is all like, just like really just super cool. So, um, I was excited. I called him and I think I was one of the first people to call him. And, uh, I said, Hey, listen, let's get this out. Everyone's going to ask us about it. Everyone's going to ask me what I'm saying about it. I said, Carlos, how do you want to handle this out of respect for you being the veteran player that you are and great player and new teammate? I'd, I'd love to respect you here and, and say, how do you want to handle it? However you want to handle it is how we're going to handle it. And he said, you know what, brother, that was a great moment for you. That was not so great for me. Let's leave it in the past. Never uh, talked about it again. I think Carlos gets too much crap for that moment from Met fans because Carlos Beltran was a great Met. I'll be the first to tell you, but there are Met fans that don't appreciate him. And I think, unfortunately, they don't appreciate him because of one app at. And look, yeah. to your credit, as much as I begrudgingly say it, you made a freaking good pitch and you struck a guy out. And it seems like that has stuck with Carlos for a lot of Met fans. And it it's just unfair. I'm just, I don't know if you know that's the way Met fans have kind of treated him over the yeah. years, but it has been very unfair. Yeah. And, and, and Carlos, like you said earlier, hadn't faced me a whole lot. You know, he had very had... I don't even know if he had an at bat off me um, before that series. And so, I mean, there wasn't a lot of familiarity there. Uh, it was kind of based off scouting reports. And the scouting reports back in the day were not like they are now. You know, now you know what color the guy was his favorite color in fifth right. grade, you know. Um, but uh, I, I think that that also played into to it with me. But um, you know what? I'm very, very grateful that that worked out because if I think if I don't get out of that situation, if Cliff pops one on me or Carlos takes me deep, probably Tony trades me to the Toronto Blue Jays and they trade me to the you know the Oakland oh, Athletics and I'm out of the game yeah, in two well, years. You would want that. It's funny. You are also a part of one of the great moments in Met history because you were the starter against Johan in that glorious no-hitter. I get a lot of shit from people that it wasn't really a no hitter because of the missed call on the Beltron line drive. I'm just asking you real, no hitter, not real, no hitter. You tell me. Well, this is like your argument earlier. I mean, it was a real no hitter, you know, because that's what it, it right. ended up. It doesn't matter what it could have been. If the call had been made different, the call wasn't made different. So um, it was a no hitter. I had so much respect for, for Johan and what, what, um, what was crazy about that day through three innings, you you can go back and check this, but I I'm pretty, I'm right around the right area. I think I had 34 pitches and I think he had 63 pitches. Uh, through yeah, three well, that, the Johan part, I and definitely so remember because he was laboring and that's why most of us didn't even realize he had a oh, no yeah. hitter because he was walking guys. He was throwing a lot of pitches. It was not, it was not as clean as you'd think. Yeah. No, 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 no. And, and, uh, and, and when you're the, the opposing pitcher, and especially I was feeling, you know, pretty good in those days, um, you start, like, tasting that, like, oh, yeah, this guy's almost done. I've got this, you know, great pitcher on the ropes. And and uh, you kind of get that little salivating feeling, like I'm about to beat this guy, you know. And 
And, uh, man, he just kept throwing punches. Didn't matter how many he threw. I think he threw, what, 168 pitches <laughs> or something? It was close. It wasn't huh? quite 168, but it was a lot, man. He 158 then, 150 yeah, he, he threw And I think there's this fear. I don't know if this is true. You better know better as a pitcher that it ruined his career. And I, I don't buy well, it. Do you buy that, that that kind of performance ruined it? No, 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 no. I, I don't think he had much longer. You, you can ask him. I, I would never asked him, but I, I don't think there was much left there. I mean, it, it's, he was in a better spot than, than I was this year. But I can tell you at any time during this season, I told my manager, Ali Marmol, I said, listen, I'm too old to come out with a no-hitter. Right. I don't care if I got 465 pitches. I'm too old to come out. If that's the last way you go, that's, that's a, a great way, way to go. go. Yeah. You know, and uh, and and I think Johan probably was in the same kind of mindset, but also an old school mindset. You know, you're not thinking about coming out ever, no matter what the score is or what how you're feeling. You you battle. You find a way to finish the job until they you know snatch the ball from you. But especially in a no hitter game, that's why you see like. You know, I think there was who was it this year that had a no hitter through seven and got taken out with like eighty pitches. I it seems like it's happened it a lot the last been, couple uh, of years. I know what happened with Kershaw recently too, and when he was coming off an injury, it might, it might have been him actually. Uh, now that I think about it, but um, you, you get a lot of texts or tweets. I mean, saying like, you know, I can't believe that I would have never done that when I was, and, and that's kind of true. That back in the day, you would it would like the manager wouldn't even ask you either he was you were just in you know but um you know i i think now with reports and what what the the, the slug is and the the ops after the third time through after the second time through and that i mean pitchers you know have a tendency to struggle more that third time through sometimes but but the thing about that is and i'll argue this to the grave every day mm. is different from the last day every single day is different than the last day. Uh, you can never judge one pitcher the same way 32 times. You know, you just can't do it. There's there's going to be a couple of days where he's having a day where he just needs the ball. Just give it to him. I don't care what that sheet says. I know, but my eyes are telling me this dude's mm. got it today. And, and managers need to be able to um, – to act on that instinct. They do, you know, I think it gets robotic. The game is not supposed to be so robotic. It's a rhythm. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a dance, you know, it's just, it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be, you know, a, a, a challenge for a manager to go, all right, well, man, what would I do here? And I, and I, and I do think there's a great place for analytics and, and all the information. There's also a great place yep. for instincts. And there's some great baseball instincts in these managers and coaches that uh, I wish would use them a little bit more. But that's my soapbox right now. But um, I do, I do think there's a, the, the, I'm loving the information that there's a, here's, here's what we could do. Here's what you right. probably should do. But is he having a day? No, That's what I'm with you. I, I assume just following your career, because I, I actually, I should admit, I begrudging you, begrudgingly started to like you as a player as time went by. May have had you on my fantasy team a few times. But the thing I actually did like about you is that I'm old school. I want the pitchers to hit. And I want the pitchers to work at hitting. I want the pitchers to not just say, oh, I suck. I guess I'll swing and miss a few yeah. times. And I remember hearing stories yeah. about you 
taking it seriously and taking the Cardinal pitchers and saying, dude, this is serious. Like we got to hit, we got to help ourselves out. Yeah. Do you miss the fact that major league baseball decided screw it? Let's just get lazy and have the universal designated hitter. I do. I, I miss it, but I get it at the same time. Um, pitchers stopped uh, two things. Pitchers stopped being given the opportunity right. to work on it as much. Um, it became much less of a priority. Uh, in the older days, you hit every day. Pitchers hit every day. They hit on the field. They stood out there and shagged for the other pitchers in spring training. Every day we hit. From the first day of spring on, you hit. You know, you bunted, you got the bunts down with velocity, you got the bunts down with spin, you hit on velocity, you hit on spin, you you worked on hitting the ball the other way, you worked on hitting runs, you worked on, you know, pull back and slugs. And, and then in, over time, uh, pitchers stopped um, getting those opportunities as much. They also stopped hitting, uh, taking it seriously as much. Kids, if you take it back even farther, Kids started being POs in high school, mm. pitcher only. I, this was a thing I didn't even know was a thing until a couple of years ago. I went out to high school practice and I, they're like, I'm like, what is that group of people over there doing? They're not even doing anything. And you're like, oh, those are POs. And I said, what is a PO? Oh, uh, pitcher only. <laughs> pitcher only. Yeah. In high school, let the guy swing. You never know. Is that a Shohei Otani? Yeah. Must be. You never know, right? So um, there's been guys. There's been guys. There's been. Um, What's his name from, uh, he was started off with us and went to Arizona, played right field for a long time in Arizona. Great player, man. He, he would have never got the opportunity if he would have just been a PO. He, all of a sudden he was a pitcher with us. Now all of a sudden he's playing right field in Arizona. So Peralta. So, um, I'm just thinking, you know, let the guys be athletes, but, uh, pitchers stopped taking it seriously. Yeah. You know, it wasn't as big a deal to so the pitcher. Pitcher started. You know, I blew my Achilles out. I was the first one to say after I blew my Achilles out, do not get rid of the pitcher hitting. Do not get the DH because of this moment. It happens. People get hurt. I would have done the same thing probably right. walking upstairs. Amen, man. Amen. So, yeah. So, um, man, I just I, – I miss it, but I also get it because pitcher at bats started going no question. downhill. Do you have a parting message for us as Met fans? So, maybe an apology. You know, maybe a, hey, sorry about that. Anything you'd like to tell all of us? Well, I will say, you know, I appreciate uh, the time to share with a lot of the Mets fans. I love New York City to visit and eat food. Some of the best food, the best pizza. No one can ever tell me that's not the best pizza. That's the best pizza. Um, great steakhouses. You know, great. It's fun to get on the subway and, and hang out with folk that you wouldn't normally hang out with. You know, it's fun. I like to do that. I like meeting new people um, from a small town in Georgia. So sometimes I do like to leave and go back, but um, I love going up there. I, I love my time in New York. You know, you told me you were going to do a 30 minute thing with me. We did almost an hour. So I feel like you kind of shoved <laughs> it up my rear end a little bit too. That's right. So, um, so uh, I feel like this, you know, it's a little give and take here, but um, it was cool talking with you. I've loved my time playing against the Mets. You know, it was, it was fun. They whooped me a few times. I whooped them a few times. It was a good match. But I love one of my favorite moments ever was getting booed during the oh, All-Star yeah. game in New York. Yeah, we were that. booing you very loudly. Well, just remember this, and I think you already know this. You will live in Met history forever. My grandkids will know about you. My kids already know about you. They hate you. You will live forever. So congratulations on that, because not a lot of people get to do that, and you accomplished it. 
And so, and, and also, in all seriousness, congrats on a great career. Uh, congratulations on the Fox job. You'll do a fine, Thank fine you. job. And we do appreciate you joining us as the inaugural member of the Killer Series, because who better to talk to than the guy that shoved it up our ass in 2006? So, Adam, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, there he is, Adam Wainwright. It's tough because after that interview, you like him a little bit more. You have to admit, there's just a part of you that says, all right, uh, okay, I still hate him. He still ruined my childhood. He still ruined my young adult life. But wow, that's a decent human being. That's a good guy. And some very insightful stories from Adam Wainwright. There's no question he's going to be very, very good on TV. Who would you like to see in the next edition of the Killer Series? So many options. You can email us, therecob at gmail.com, therecob at gmail.com. But we do appreciate Adam Wainwright joining us. We have the video of this interview on YouTube. So if you want to see the interactions between me and Wayno, you could certainly go on the YouTube channel of WFAN and check it out. We appreciate you listening and downloading. And I remind you, next week, Sunday, February 3rd, we will be posting the Rico rewatch of Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS. So if you thought the pain was done, here comes the pain. We have some more for you. (laughs) But thank you very much for listening and downloading another edition of Rico Bro. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronio podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.